0: To the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Lisa Tessman. Her new book is titled Moral Failure on the Impossible Demands of Morality. It's just been published by Oxford University Press. Tessman is professor of philosophy. At Binghamton University. Moral theories are often focused on answering the question, What ought I do? Typically, theories presuppose that for any particular agent under any given circumstance, there indeed is some particular thing that she ought to do. And if she were indeed to do this thing, she would thereby morally succeed. But we know from experience that our moral lives involve moral dilemmas, cases in which it seems that moral success is not possible because every action available to us is morally wrong, even unacceptable. In such cases, morality requires what is not possible. No matter what one does, one acts as one ought not to act. In her book, Moral Failure, Lisa Tessman proposes an original account of impossible moral demands and forcefully argues for a novel approach to moral theory that can recognize their normative authority. Hello, Lisa Tessman. Hello, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm
1: great. How are you?
0: Oh, well, I'm doing fine. Thank you for joining us on New Books and Philosophy. Well,
1: thank you for inviting me.
0: And thank you, listener, for checking out the program. My guest today is Lisa Tessman. Her new book is titled Moral Failure on the Impossible Demands of Morality. Uh, This is a fascinating exploration of cases where uh, agents seem to be confronted with a moral choice, uh, but in the context, there's no way to avoid choosing something that's wrong. Um, This is a book about what are sometimes called tragic conflicts, these are conflicts where one must not only do wrong, but commit a wrong that is uncompensated for, uh, that represents a loss that can't be made up for in any way. Um, I highly recommend the book. Uh, the um, phenomena that it discusses are familiar to moral agents all over the place. But um, the actual philosophical structure of these phenomena are not uh not always clear and are, um, it's hard to get a handle on them, although uh, Lisa goes a long way uh, in helping us do so. Um, so before we get on uh, to talking about the details of the book, uh, we usually start with the author. Lisa, uh, why don't you share some things about yourself with us?
1: Okay. Um, well, I'm from the Boston area. I, I did my undergraduate degree at Carleton College in Minnesota, and that's where I took my first philosophy course, which I still remember. In fact, I think I still have notes from it. Um, It was called Freedom and Authority. It was basically an introductory course in social and political philosophy, and uh, I was very excited. I was hooked into philosophy by it. It was taught by Maria Lagones, who entirely coincidentally is now at Binghamton University, where I am, and uh, she was my main influence while I was an undergraduate, and in two important ways. Um, One is that she introduced me to feminist philosophy, And the other was that she introduced me to Aristotle and both became important. So I very quickly decided to be a philosophy major and very quickly after that decided I wanted to be a philosophy professor. I think at that point I had a very slanted view of philosophy because I had not really been exposed to some of the kind of super analytic um, metaphysics and epistemology. So I didn't quite know what I was getting myself into. Um, And I chose a graduate program, which was the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Which at the time had a special track in social and political philosophy. So I continued kind of specializing in that way. Um, I really mostly studied social and political philosophy in graduate school and then, um, gravitated more and more toward ethics after I finished my degree. Um, and at UMass, I wa- worked primarily with, uh, Robert Paul Wolf and also Ann Ferguson. And, um, after that, I, I held a couple of non-tenure track positions at Mount Holyoke, which was wonderful, at University of New Hampshire. But during those years, um, my then partner, now spouse, and I were commuting long distances. She was already here at Binghamton. Uh, people may know her work, Bata Mi Bar An. She studies Hannah Arendt. Um, she works on the topic of violence, especially war. And actually, right now, she's doing incredibly timely work on uh, refugees. So she was at Binghamton and we were commuting and eventually I um, got the position at Binghamton University where I am now. It's a really wonderful department. Um, even if Binghamton is not the most wonderful town to live in, um, <laughs> it's really made up for by the department. We have a specialized graduate program in social, political, ethical, and legal philosophy. So, you know, the, all of the graduate students and most of the faculty have a kind of cluster of interests around that area. And it means we always have people to talk to about things that we're interested in.
0: No, sounds wonderful. Um, so was there any particular just asking what, one more follow up? Is um, there any particular um, uh, reason that you could point to why you 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 move sort of in the direction of moral philosophy? From the earlier interest in political?
1: Well, I guess there's two answers. Um, one is that I have always been interested in the self and the experiences of the self, and even though, like for instance, my first book, I thought about a lot about this: what the self experiences in the context of political struggles against different kinds of oppression. So it was a mixture of social, and political philosophy, and ethics. I took that. That book was called Burden Virtues, and I took a virtue ethics approach there, but I thought mainly about the self and the virtues of the self who is in a um, context of struggling against oppression, and so there are social and political factors that affect that context. Um, but but moral psychology um, helps me think more about the experience of living in that um, context. But then the other reason is it's a little bit funny, is that uh, my partner Ami actually uh, specializes more in political philosophy and we decided we needed to stay out of each other's turf. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think it was entirely conscious decision, but we, we used to both do more of both. And then we each kind of gravitated in a different direction. So that worked out nicely. Uh,
0: it does. Um, and I should add that the, 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 the book moral, uh, moral failure, um, especially in some of the later chapters um, does broach uh you know pretty significant issues in uh social philosophy about oppression. Um so now that we're talking about the book um uh let's 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 dive into some detail. Um so the book begins um with uh, a discussion of you know what it is or what it feels like or the experience of grasping a moral requirement and ultimately um Uh, The first uh, several chapters of the book are aimed at trying to make sense of the idea that there could be such a thing as an impossible moral requirement, that is a moral requirement that that it is impossible to satisfy. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how the book begins?
1: Yes. Right. So you're right that the starting point of the book is with the experience of grasping that one is morally required to do something. So the way I think about it is that moment when one realizes, I must there's something I must do. Um, and oftentimes it's a very ordinary experience. We we feel ourselves obligated to do something and we go right ahead and we do it. But what I look at instead are cases where we continue to have that feeling, we grasp that, that requirement, but we're in a situation where we cannot do what we have um, just determined that we are required to do. And that experience, of course, has been dismissed by people who embrace the Kantian principle that ought implies can. So the idea is that behind ought implies can is that uh, we can only be required to do something that we are able to do. And in a way, that principle is very intuitively appealing because it seems only fair that one can only be obligated to do something that's possible. It seems unfair to require the impossible. But, um, I, I want to give a lot of weight to the fact that people do experience being impossibly obligated. And then I need to make sense of why both ought implies can seems like it makes a lot of sense. And these experiences that we have of encountering impossible moral requirements also um, seem to make a lot of sense. So eventually that leads me to uh, consider questions of what morality is and how something can come to count as a real moral requirement. And here I adopt uh, or kind of join other constructivists in a picture of morality as something that we build, that we shape socially. And moral values are valuable because there is somebody who values them. And so we really have to start with evaluative experiences, including experiences of requirement, what we might call normative experiences. And it's not that there's a direct relationship where everything we experience as required is thereby required, but there is always some relationship. And the difficult question for constructivists is the question of how one gets from that kind of starting point of this initial judgment of moral requirement to what the constructed values or the constructed requirements, where we say something really carries the authority of a moral requirement. And there, I'll come back to this uh, in a little more detail, but there I differ from other constructivists who tend to use a very um, rationalist process for determining which values get to count or which requirements get to count as real uh, requirements. So I do end up saying that we should count at least some of our experiences of impossible moral requirements as, um, as revealing that there are real requirements there that are impossible.
0: Okay. Okay. Can, can can you tell us a little bit more though about, you know, what the impossibility of the impossible moral requirements consists in, Or, or let me, let me put it slightly differently. It looks like you're concerned mainly with, uh, or perhaps one way to start thinking about uh, the possibility of impossible moral requirements is these sort of cases of conflict where there are only to simplify just two options. Both are bad and there's no way to um, uh, theorize the, com- the competing options such that um, doing the one bad thing makes up for the bad or compensates for the bad that's left behind when you when you choose the one and not the other. Is is that right?
1: Right. So let me um, let me turn to the place where uh, impossible moral requirements have kind of gotten the most discussion, and that's Good. in what we might call the moral dilemmas debate, uh, which is the debate about the question of whether or not there can be such a thing as a genuine moral dilemma. Now, a moral conflict is not necessarily a moral dilemma. So, a moral conflict takes place any time that One ought to do each of two things and one can't do both. The way that I define a moral dilemma is that one is required to do each of two things, one cannot do both, and the conflict itself does not serve to cancel either one of the requirements. So they both remain binding. Um, So that position kind of was initiated by Bernard Williams, who spoke about um, the overridden moral requirement as leaving a moral remainder. So let me explain kind of the two positions, uh, two different angles taken by the anti-dilemma theorists and um, and then kind of my response to them. So they come in two varieties and those who tend to take a more deontological approach use the premise that ought implies can um, along with a principle that is sometimes called the agglomeration principle, namely if I ought to do A and I ought to do B, then I ought to do both uh, A and B. To show that one would simply reach a contradiction if one assumes that there is a dilemma. So if you su- assume that I ought to do A, I ought to do B, and I cannot do both, which are the three assumptions together that um, that create the dilemma. And um, so therefore, I ought to do both A and B, but I cannot do both A and B, and ought implies can Uh, I reach reach a contradiction there because I I reach the claim both that I cannot do A and B and that I must do A and B Therefore it must be the case that I can do A and B. Mm -hmm. So they simply kind of through this use of deontic logic um, Have to say There can be no genuine moral dilemmas, which means there cannot actually be any moral conflict Um, and there can't be conflicts because they see no way for a moral requirement to get canceled in the course of resolving the conflict. So if they go in as absolute moral requirements, they stay as absolute moral requirements and create this contradiction. The difference between them and the other approach to denying dilemmas, um, which I call the conflict resolution conflict resolution approach, and it's <laughs> taken primarily by consequentialists, is that um, they they see a way to resolve a conflict because they do think that one of the two conflicting moral requirements can get canceled by being overridden. And it's primarily um, this group, those taking the conflict resolution approach that I um, respond to because the way that they see a moral requirement as getting overridden and, and canceled is to say that the two conflicting moral requirements are really just um, prima facie moral requirements and only one of those can become an all-things-considered requirement. And the way that the one that gets overridden is canceled is that um, one does kind of a a weighing of um, pros and cons or cost-benefit analysis to see which of the two moral requirements um is more stringent and the thought is that if one does the best that one can in the situation by maximizing um some value like it could just be the overall good then one has thereby done what is morally required so if one is required to do the best that is possible and satisfying only one of the two moral requirements is what is possible then by resolving the conflict in the better way that is possible, one does the right thing. So then for them, a moral conflict is not a situation of unavoidable moral wrongdoing. Where I disagree is um, probably comes from the fact that I am a moral value pluralist. So I see values as plural, in the sense that they cannot all be reduced down to quantities of the same good stuff. And um, because of that, they may not be able to substitute for each other without unique loss. So some of those ideas are coming from Christopher Goins, who wrote the book Innocence Lost, um, where he argues that if one value can't substitute fully, uh, if it's not fungible with another value, then then a requirement can't get canceled by being overridden because the value that the, that requirement was protecting has not been replaced by something that gives one everything that um, fulfilling that requirement would have given one. So even taking the better choice, there may still be unique loss.
0: And um, in these in, in some of these cases, just to get back to some of the experience stuff that you're concerned with, you know, it's not um, it's not uncommon for uh, a moral agent when confronting a really hard moral choice to feel some pang of regret, even when they think they've done the right thing.
1: Right. So so those t- taking this approach tend to to focus on those experiences, um, starting with Bernard Williams and to take those experiences as indicative of the fact that there was something about the conflict that was not fully resolved. Um, now, I don't think that every single case where there is unique loss is a case of unavoidable moral wrongdoing. And the reason is that sometimes a loss can be unique, but still quite small and inconsequential, right? So, um, so we also have to make a judgment about how serious Of a loss there is. And I don't spend a lot of time um, talking about, you know, drawing a line between a serious enough and a not serious enough loss to be concerned about. But if we think about something like um, Martha Nussbaum's capabilities approach in which she lists 10 different um, areas in which everyone should be guaranteed certain capabilities and says there's a threshold in each area. Below that threshold, one can't live what she calls a life worthy of human dignity, but we might want to just think about it as a good enough life. So, so somewhere there's a threshold where not only is a, a, a loss unique, but it's a big enough, important enough um, loss, a loss of something valuable that, um, that we want to say moral failure takes place when even in making the better choice in a conflict, we cause this kind of a serious and irreplaceable loss. And it's that experience, it's experiences in situations where that kind of loss is what happens. Um, so, of course, you know, the classic cases are a parent who can save only one of two children. Um, so you can make these, these cases very, very clearly cases where the loss um, is enormous and that nothing can replace that loss. And in those cases, I, I want to insist that no matter whether one did the best that was possible, uh, one has failed morally.
0: Right. So let me just now ask if you can sort of put this into some piece of vocabulary that you introduce. So you you draw a distinction between um, negotiable and non-negotiable moral requirements. Am I right in thinking that the non-negotiable ones are the ones that that cannot be canceled?
1: Exactly. So if you think about the conflict resolution approach, um, negotiable requirements are requirements that when overridden are canceled because they're ones where um, you can substitute. Either you can substitute the value of the overriding requirement for the value of the overridden one, or even if you can't exactly substitute it because the values are not fungible, uh, it's still a small enough loss that one can take it in stride. So it's okay to negotiate with those. It's okay to have them be canceled when they are overridden. The requirements that are non-negotiable are requirements that are, in some way, protecting a value that has no substitution um, and is a serious enough uh, loss that we need to consider that loss to be uh, to be caused by a moral failure.
0: Excellent. Um, so, just to move on now, the the, the second chapter of the book is um, uh, fascinating in that. Um, you uh, argue that uh, a certain picture, uh, a certain empirical picture of um, uh, decision making in general, perhaps and, and judgment in general, um, can help explain, uh, or can lend further elucidation to uh, the the experience. That we were just talking about of being impossibly obligated Uh, can you run us through some of uh some of those uh points
1: yes so um the way i I got to that is that it seems that if one makes the judgment about whether or not one uh, whether or not a moral requirement is still binding in one of the forms of reasoning that the anti-dilemma um approaches take right so either if one um, are if one reasons in the way that one does in deontic logic, or if one reasons by calculating and doing sort of a cost-benefit analysis, one cannot arrive, one can't both assume and implies can and arrive at a judgment that one is impossibly obligated. So it's kind of mysterious. How do we have these experiences of grasping an impossible moral requirement? And um, after I've been reading a lot of the material in the moral dilemmas debate, I came upon all of this very very exciting uh, empirical work that's being done in moral psychology and um, The empirical work draws on the work of other cognitive psychologists who talk about there being a dual systems Dual systems for cognitive processing in general, but also there is dual processing in the case of moral judgment so for those unfamiliar with that um the idea is that we have two different systems for cognitive processing. And uh, one is conscious and the other is unconscious and intuitive. So in the conscious system, um, we reason our way through steps. We can control that process consciously. It takes attentional resources. Um, so we have to we have to um pay some conscious attention to it in order to control it. Whereas the um The other system that we have for cognitive processing is entirely automatic. It runs below the level of consciousness. It doesn't take any attentional resources. And uh, it happens very, very fast. And I looked a lot at the work of um, Jonathan Haidt, who is a social psychologist who's uh, uh, fairly popularly known now. And his um, claim is that most of our moral judgments are made through the intuitive automatic process rather than through the reasoning process. And there's a lot of evidence to support this. So um, I won't go through that evidence right now, but uh, so it occurred to me that the judgments that we make that we are impossibly obligated, we may be making those judgments automatically. We may be making them intuitively. And so ought implies can doesn't really get an opportunity to insert itself into that process. Um, so the question is, uh, should we then still count these intuitive judgments as reliable, as telling us what we really are re- morally required to do, or should we dismiss them? Um, because it seems like there's a lot of reason to dismiss our intuitive judgments. Many, and There's several problems with our intuitive judgments. One of them is, for instance, that's where implicit bias comes in. Um, so we want to be very careful of relying on those kinds of intuitive judgments. Another is simply that um, intuitive judgments don't fine-tune themselves to uh, circumstances. So we form these habits, we might want to say, of, of making these judgments in one context. Um, and this may be over evolutionary time. It may be within our own lifetimes, depending what the judgment is. And then when the circumstances change, we simply make the same judgment. We don't um, factor in the information that we're in a different kind of situation. So it may be that we're making our judgments of impossible moral requirements because we're in a situation that we have an, an evolved psychological mechanism for responding to in a certain way, right? So if we see somebody right in front of us who needs help, who's in danger, Our automatic response is to feel that we must help and you know it's fairly obvious why a response like that would have evolved Um, but if we're in a situation where in fact we can't help maybe we're physically unable to maybe we can't because it is a situation of a conflict where there's two different people who need our help and we can't help both we will continue to have that same psychological response where it, it seems to us that we must do it. Um, and if the judgment is made intuitively, we're not reasoning in a way where we could say, I must do it, but I can't do it. And Ought and place can. So therefore, it must be the case that I'm not obligated to do it. We just simply judge. I must do it. Um, so that seems like a strong case for dismissing intuitive judgment. It seems like these are ways in which they can go wrong. Um, but then I look at some other empirical work. And um, this is Philip Tetlock's work on what he calls sacred values. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that people uh, in moral communities tend to sacralize some set of values. They tend to take some set of values as sacred in the sense that they feel that they should infinitely value them, that they shouldn't compare them or trade them off against non-sacred values. And his experiments are very interesting. So, for instance, he has one experiment in which um, his subjects read a narrative. And what they do is they read narratives about a character, a fictionalized character, who um, makes a judgment in a case where they're comparing a sacred value with a non sacred value. So, there's one case, for instance, where they read a narrative about a hospital administrator. who is just has to decide whether or not to spend certain funds on saving the life of a little boy named Johnny or on spending the funds for other hospital needs. And the subjects under one condition read that the hospital administrator deliberates for a long time and finally decides to spend the funds to save Johnny's life. And the subjects under the other condition read the narrative that says, Um, The hospital administrator immediately decided to spend the funds to save the, the, um, to save Johnny's life. And then Tetlock measures how much moral outrage the subjects express after reading about the hospital administrator. And it turns out that those who think that the hospital administrator had to think about, had to deliberate about whether or not to save Johnny's life, express intense moral outrage. Um, and those who think that uh, the administrator made the decision immediately, don't express outrage about it.
0: So, <laughs> so it's like it's the one thought too exactly
1: many. Exactly. <laughs> right. And that's what I connected to also. I mean, the, the Bernard Williams case where um, where two people fall overboard of a of a boat. One of them is the rescuer's wife and the other one is a stranger. And um, William says, well, <laughs> if we explain the situation by saying that the, the rescuer first considers whether or not it is morally permissible to give priority to his wife and rescue her for, first or whether he should decide impartially. And he does, in fact, decide that it's permissible to give priority to his wife and that he saves her. And William says of that, um, you know, <laughs> that construction gives gives him one thought too many. And it might have been hoped by some. It might have been hoped, for instance, by the wife uh, that it was that she was his wife and presumably, of course, that he loves her. Uh, rather than that, it was his wife and that it was morally permissible that led him to do it. So, so yes, the hospital administrator also thought one thought too many. So it seems that in some situations, we want from other people that they make their moral judgments regarding us intuitively. We want other people to have an intuitive, um, reaction against, uh, Sacrificing a sacred value. You can also think about the trolley problem. Mm -hmm. Most respondents have an intuitive response to not push the person off of the footbridge. Um, And we tend to want the strangers that we're standing next to on footbridges to feel that way. Even though, of course, if we switch and we do have that one thought too many and we make the reasoned judgment, we might weigh five lives against one and and so on. But it seems that some of what we want from each other is that we respond with these affect-laden intuitions. And the other place that we tend to really want that is in the context of love. So I I love Harry Frankfurt's um, book on love, The Reasons of Love. And part of what he says in it is that um, a constitutive part of a certain kind of, of loving is... What he calls um, having a volitional necessity, grasping the volitional necessity of doing certain things on behalf of one's beloved. So that when one loves someone, one grasps that there are certain things, things that would, for instance, protect one's beloved, the alternatives to which are all unthinkable. Mm -hmm. And it's just evident that they are unthinkable um, in this intuitive way. So. Um, I'm unwilling to let go of the that value that is expressed in that, right? That um, I think when we want to be loved, we want the person who loves us in this way to find it unthinkable to do certain things. But to say that it's unthinkable, I take to mean not only is it wrong to do, right? Not only is it wrong to do something that would threaten one's beloved. It is wrong to consider doing it in the way that Tetlock subjects found it wrong for the hospital administrator to consider sacrificing Johnny's life, even if he ultimately decided to save Johnny's life.
0: So, so yeah, go ahead. Uh, so, let me just ask now: just how to just how you see the the fit between um, the experiential you might say in a certain sense, phenomenological approach about the experience of being impossibly uh, uh, obligated with the two systems approach. Uh, Do you see this as a tight fit? I mean, um, some of the language that I think gets expressed in these conflict cases, like I'm of two minds, um, uh, seems to lend itself to uh, uh, this two systems model. Um, But, um, I take it that at least it's it's not that in some cases we experience the moral conflict as a conflict of reasons.
1: Right. I mean, okay. let me clarify. I'm not saying that it is always wrong to reason our way to our moral judgments. I I certainly wouldn't want to say that. So the tendency, I think, in rationalist traditions has been to dismiss the intuitive. But I'm not arguing that we should only make our judgments intuitively. So I think that the problem is that some of our intuitive judgments are good and we want to keep them. And not only do we want to keep them, but what we seem to want to keep not just the verdict, but we want to keep the intuitive process of reaching the verdict. Right. So we see that. Empirically, people do value that when we look at Tedlock's work, for instance. On the other hand, we also sometimes, if we later reflect back on our intuitive judgments, want to reject um, the verdict that we came to. So cases of implicit bias would be like this. There's also cases, particularly when a group, when a social group sacralizes a value, that terrible things can be done in the name of that value. So uh, Jonathan Haidt, for instance, has work that came out after I, I published the book, um, but that I think is very important. That uh, of the dangers of sacralizing, because when one sees a value as sacred, one sees it as necessary to preserve that value no matter what. Mm-hmm. So that can lead to, um, you know, we have historical cases where that leads to genocide. Mm-hmm. In, in, um, so I'm not. Um, just promoting sacred values as necessarily good. So what we have is a big problem. We make our judgments either intuitively or through reasoning. We have this jumble of different judgments, some good, some bad, some in conflict with each other. And we need some way of sorting them out and figuring out which ones to endorse or to uh, imbue with authority. And now we need a method for doing that. But the method that has been primarily relied upon by uh, at least contemporary moral philosophers is reflective equilibrium, um, most famously you know, elaborated by Rawls. But there are many different versions of it that people have taken up. And it's amazing how many um, books in moral philosophy have something like, I adopt here a version of reflective equilibrium and then and go on elaborate a version of it. The reason why I think that's problematic is because that process is always conceived as a reasoning process. So there is just that certain class of values for which that would be the wrong process for double checking on whether or not to endorse that value. And those are the cases where one's in danger of thinking one thought too many, because one could think that One thought too many, either in the process of coming to the initial verdict or later in that process of reflective equilibrium, when asking, is that verdict one that I can endorse? Do I count it as really carrying moral authority? Um, It's the search for justification that is problematic because I think in some of those cases, like in the case where one wants to be loved by somebody whose response to one is automatic and doesn't depend upon justification, right? That that in the process of of checking on one's intuitive judgment through a process like reflective equilibrium, it is then that one would think one thought too many.
0: Right. So let me then ask uh, to to pick up on on a comment you mentioned earlier. Um, uh, in in a lot of the the work you were you were just discussing that 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 articulates a some version of reflective equilibrium um, in some um, some cases maybe many cases um, reflective equilibrium is 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 part of a broader uh, story of um, about uh, how we arrive at our views about values or how we make value judgments or how we check them. Um, and that story is often connected to another sort of uh, element in the the larger Rawlsian story, which is a kind of constructivism. Now, you had said earlier that you're a kind of constructivist, but um, you try to introduce into constructivism um, a uh, independent kind of concern for the affective. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that model of constructivism?
1: Yeah. So, um the version of constructivism that I start with is um one you could call it nurathian based on the image of nurath's boat where mm-hmm. the claim is that one has to, you know, you're a sailor out at sea and you have to repair your boat while at sea. So you have to stand on some of the planks of the boat or ship while one is uh, checking the other planks to see if they need repair and while one is repairing them. So there is nowhere off of the ship. Um, so it's non-foundationalist in that sense. And, uh, basically all that we have to stand on while we are scrutinizing some of our values to see whether or not to endorse them, the only place we have to stand is on our other values. We are never, there is never a place outside of all of our values. So, you know, I'm rejecting kind of a moral realism here um, and accepting the contingency of what we value. Uh, So. um, There are a lot of constructivists who accept that basic picture. The one in the book that I give a lot of attention to is Sharon Street's version of constructivism, which she calls metaethical constructivism. And um, that's. She calls it also a Humean constructivism to distinguish it from a Kantian constructivism. And part of what she sees as the Humean aspect of her constructivism is the way, is the contingency of value. So what is valuable for her, and I agree with her, is dependent upon what we, namely we creatures who engage in value activities, what we actually do value. Um, and um, Street, at that point, adopts something just like reflective equilibrium, which where she thinks about critically scrutinizing um, our values from the perspective of our other values. And she believes that when we do that, we are we are aiming just like in reflective equilibrium to come to a consistent set of values so that they all pass scrutiny from the perspective of each other. Um, And what I say is that I think we have to take the contingency of value one step further than she does, which is that there is a contingency not only to what we value, but also to how we value. So what's valuable is dependent upon the contingent fact that human beings make most of our evaluative judgments in this um, unconscious, intuitive or automatic way. And when we do that, we don't necessarily end up with a set of consistent values. So, aiming for coherence or consistency of our values requires a reasoning process because it's only through reasoning that we check for consistency in that way. But I can make an intuitive judgment in a situation that I am morally required to do both of two mutually exclusive options. Um, So, in the construction of value, I think that we have to permit both of those two kinds of processes reasoning processes and uh intuitive process as uh, a way to reach that endorsement or affirmation of a value. And if we do that um we're left with a big mess essentially because we won't be left with a consistent set of values. Uh there are some values like like sacred values that if we are to affirm them, we have to affirm them without thereby violating them. And so we have to affirm them without um, considering rejecting them. Because if their alternatives are unthinkable, then we then what is unthinkable is rejecting them. So we must not consider it. Uh, it's just the mere consideration of it rather than just the um, just the decision that can count as a violation. So in some cases, we are in that way kind of morally prohibited from considering rejecting an intuitive judgment that we may have made. And that is very, very risky because sometimes we sacralize things that in some sense we want to say we shouldn't have. Um, And I don't see a way of avoiding that risk. Because I think that if we insist on double checking through reasoning on each of our, our values or each of our judgments about what we are required to do, we will in the process think the unthinkable. And so sometimes we have to just have an automatic confidence rather than a confidence based on having found a justification for a moral judgment that we make. And that's risky because sometimes, you know, uh, it would have been better to have rejected uh, intuitive judgment that we make.
0: Right. Right. So let me move on to one of the the later chapters where you draw um, pretty heavily on some testimony and um, on um, some descriptions of um experiences where um, uh, people feel impossibly obligated I'm thinking pr- primarily of um, the discussions uh, you have of some of the testimony from um, uh, from Holocaust uh, victims and survivors. Can you tell us a, a bit about the role that plays in the argument?
1: Yeah, so um, in this chapter, I'm looking at the fact that it that oftentimes, People who listen to Holocaust testimony try to not hear in that testimony accounts of moral failure and particularly accounts of unavoidable moral failure. Mm -hmm. And so I draw a lot on Lawrence Langer, um, the scholar of of the Holocaust and looks at Holocaust testimony. And he notices this, that those who are listening to Holocaust testimony want to still see kind of the moral virtues in survivors' stories. And he says, you know, um, they just have to project it onto that because it's not in the actual testimony. And I think he's right about that. And I think that um, once one can recognize that there is such a thing as unavoidable moral failure that one can be, for instance, in moral dilemmas, then it's much easier to um, hear the, the stories of those failures in places like Holocaust Testimony. I mean, don't mean it's easy to hear it, but one can hear it um, and actually take it in and, and how horrifying it is. So, um, so for instance, I mean, a, a, a Sophie's Choice is a very overused example that um, that moral philosophers use in the moral dilemmas debate. People on both sides of the debate use Sophie's Choice as an example where Sophie was confronted with choosing which of her two children to um, hand to an SS officer. Um, To bring to their death and um, or similarly some of the um, experimental uh, work that Joshua Green, for instance, does looks at cases that philosophers have called the crying baby case uh, where you have a baby who is crying and the baby's cries will alert the enemy to where you and all of your comrades are hiding. Um, So the question is whether to smother the baby, given that you and the baby and everybody else would be killed if the baby's cries alert the enemy. So these are kinds of dilemmas that one finds the real versions of in a lot of Holocaust testimony. And if you really listen, then you can then you can see two kinds of unavoidable failures uh, in this testimony. So one is the kind that takes place in a situation that's a dilemma um, where survivors, you know, talk about having been in these dilemmas and. Um, and acted in one way or the other. And, and of course, there's a tendency afterwards to feel guilt or shame um, of, a, of a really powerful sort. Mm-hmm. But the other situation is cases where the agency um, of the person has been so diminished uh, that you can't really say that they made a choice at all, or that they were an agent. And so there I say, it's not that The moral failure is the failure of an agent, but somehow morality itself fails because the conditions for it aren't present. Um, So, for instance, there's one story of a boy, uh, a teenage boy who was in the selection line at at one of the um, camps and his little brother was with him. And he told his, his little brother to go stand in the other line with their parents. And as a result, the little boy Went to his death with his parents and the one who was a teenager at the time, uh, was sent to work and lived. And he feels guilty, uh, forever after about this. But it seems that actually, um, there was something worse going on, which was that he, he had no, he couldn't really choose. He could, he picked which line his little brother should go to. But he did so in a complete absence of information about what the consequences of that would be. And so there, he had no possibility um, of acting as an agent at all. And um, in cases where one's agency has been so diminished or taken away entirely, one may feel shame in the aftermath of that. And it's, Really shame at not having been an agent, where, th- where there's a sense in which one should, even though impossibly should, have been an agent um, as as a human being.
0: Right, and th- th- maybe you can say wh- wh- I, m- for reasons that I won't go into, connected to my own work, I was b- very interested and in, and and moved uh, philosophically by your discussion about action guidingness in moral theory. Right. Um, and what looks like a, um, uh, a particularly in political philosophy a normative political philosophy where there 's a lot of work being done that 's saying you know, theories of justice have to guide action in the real world otherwise they 're defective in some way. Can you tell us a little bit about how you use the the, the um, how you see uh this conception of impossible obligation um as a, a kind of um, consideration against action-guidingness in our normative theories?
1: Yeah, so so that comes up both in the chapter on Holocaust Testimony and, and in the chapter after that, which is on ideal and non-ideal theory, particularly as um, employed by people who theorize about oppression. Um, right. So if the questions that we are asking as moral theorists are all action-guiding questions, right, what should I do? Um, we miss the commentary or the kind of assessment of a situation as one where failure, moral failure, is unavoidable. So, in a dilemma, one does have to ask the action-guiding um, question because you have to act. You have to act one way or the other. But if one only asks the action-guiding question, one does, then and then one equates the answer. To the action-guiding question, the answer to the question "What shall I do?" as being the morally right thing to do, right? Then you can't um, you can't see that failure was unavoidable in that situation. So where that comes up in non-ideal theory um, is that non-ideal theorists, instead of aiming for, say, a perfectly just society, instead are aiming for the best feasible option: how to improve. The situation that we are in right now and make it something better and when we ask that question how do we improve on the situation that we're in how do we make it more just we are asking for a choice amongst a variety of non-ideal options now that in itself is not problematic right I think we do have to do that but if that's all we do then we don't notice that in many cases the best that's possible is still unacceptably bad So, for instance, if we think back to Nussbaum's capabilities approach, oftentimes it's not possible to bring everyone up to a threshold level in all 10 capabilities. And Nussbaum herself has an article where she she calls the action guiding question the obvious question and the question about whether or not there's a situation where, um, where that is free of moral wrongdoing. She calls that the tragic question. So for her, you know, tragedy takes place when one can't bring people up to the threshold level of one capability without pushing them below it in another. And that's if one asks both the action guiding question and the question of whether or not um, failure is unavoidable, then one at least gets to see and remember that um, in many situations the best that is possible is not good enough. And I, I see that uh, as rare in Oppression theory. Rare that that commentary is made that um, the option that we are recommending that everyone do is still a failure, right? Usually, there's a kind of a sometimes even a righteousness behind the prescription. Here's what we should do to fight oppression, um, without noticing that that very thing may itself be uh, not good enough. What we really want is is something that's not available.
0: Yeah, and interestingly. Um a lot of those arguments do run very explicitly on what implies can.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, I think that these these tend the non-ideal theory tends to line up with those in the moral dilemmas d- debate who I say take the conflict resolution approach. Right. Right. Um, so it's not that what implies can is used um, to show that it would be contradictory to claim it was a dilemma, but rather we're in a conflict. Our aim is to resolve it. In the by choosing the best of the possible options. Um, and so, uh, the, you know, to do that, we ask the action guiding question. And and so, in a way, non-ideal theory engages in a form of idealizing because it idealizes the moral agent as someone who always has the possibility of being morally good if only they make the right choice.
0: Right, right, right. So just to shift gears, um, uh Can we talk a little bit, uh, we've got some time, about um, the implications of of your view about sort of impossible obligations for what I take would be to our listeners familiar arguments about uh, the category of the supererogatory?
1: Sure. So um, supererogationist theories, want to say that there's a class of actions that are good to do morally good to do but not required to do i don't deny that there are such actions but i think that what fit into the category of the supererogatory is a much smaller set of actions than what supererogationist theories tend to to say that they are so i think that something like a favor we might think about as a favor is a supererogatory action if i could do something helpful to my neighbor say but my neighbor could perfectly well get along without it. One might want to say I'm doing something super erogatory. What I'm concerned with are that set of actions that may be extremely demanding, right? So um, so for instance, acts consequentialists or, um, tend to be charged with the demandingness objection by saying that their theories are over demanding for counting these class of actions as required, the supererogationists will say, those are supererogatory. Okay, So, so, so if at a certain point in action is extremely demanding, like, you know, giving a lot of one's income to help alleviate uh, global poverty is the classic example. Um, one set of theorists, the supererogationist, will say, that's going beyond the call of duty. You're not required to do that much. That's supererogatory. Whereas, um, you know, a certain group of act consequentialist, like Singer and Unger and so on, will say, no, you are required, um, even though it's extremely demanding, um, they are required. So the question is what I, I want to say about this demanding question. And um, what I see in the cases of those extremely um, demanding uh, situations is that there are actually impossible demands. Um because they will tend to conflict with other things that I also take to be demands. So a lot of the theorists who want to argue against um, the very demanding moral theories and make more moderate theories argue for it by saying that there are certain agent centered prerogatives that we're allowed to prioritize our own interests in certain cases. And what I think they miss, is that a lot, of the, a lot of the activities that they name in kind of agent-centered prerogatives, like, for instance, taking care of one's own family, can also be seen as moral demands. So if you look at uh, care ethics, particularly feminist care ethics, they're very focused on the demands of care work. And mostly the focus is on care for those who are uh, intimate others, For one's, oftentimes, for instance, for one's family. And if we see those as um, as another kind of a moral demand, then when we're facing a question like how much uh, how uh, much do we have to give of our time, our effort, our money, or whatever to satisfy these impartial um, demands, versus how much can I focus, say, on my own family? If we see that as a conflict situation then we see it as a situation where the moral demands are impossible to fulfill. So instead of making moral life extremely demanding, which is the charge against, say, Singer, um, it makes moral life extremely difficult and in a different way because when we fail to fulfill the impartial demands, we tend not to intuitively experience it as a failure. Right. That's the whole point of Singer is contrast between the child in front of us in the pond and the child dying of starvation on the other side of the globe, is that it's intuitive to respond to the child in front of us. Um, So when the moral demands on us are from those who are near us, intimate others, or at least proximate others, and we fail to fulfill them, that tends to make moral life very difficult because it is a case of failing to do what we intuitively grasp we must do whereas failing to meet the impartial demands um, makes moral life seem very demanding if we recognize them as demands. But we tend to see it as a case where we would be um, self-sacrificing to meet those demands, and it tends not to be something that we intuitively grasp. So I think we have both demands on us. I think we do have these very stringent, impartial moral demands on us. And I think that we have moral demands for care to care for those who are close to us. And what that creates is a a situation where uh, moral life is impossibly demanding rather than just very demanding.
0: (laughs) Well, this has been um, really fascinating. And uh, let me once again uh, recommend to our listeners uh, uh, your book, um, Moral failure on the impossible demands of morality. Um, Lisa, one last question, if I may. Uh, w- do you have a, a project following up on this, or are you next going to look at something uh, entirely new?
1: Um, not entirely new, but but yes, an entirely different project. Um, because what I'm doing is I am trying to um, write a book that contains many of the same ideas as Moral Failure did, but write it for a different audience. I want mm. to write it for more of a lay audience. Um, which is something I've never done before. Both of my books, I, re- I realize, are aimed at um, it, an audience that has at least some and really a fair amount of background in philosophy. And I'm now trying to convey some of the ideas in a way that somebody with zero background in philosophy will be able to pick it up and read it. Um, and it's really fun to do. It took me a long time to get started because I had to figure out what sort of a voice to use. Um, But once I started, I went fairly quickly through drafting most of the chapters. Um, So soon I'll be sending that out to to see if anyone else thinks that I I found the right voice in it.
0: (laughs) Well, that's wonderful. I look forward to that. Um, But for now, uh, I want to thank you for uh, being so generous with your time uh, and for appearing on New Books in Philosophy.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: Well, thank you. Take care now. You too. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Lisa Tessman of Binghamton University. We're talking about her new book, Moral Failure on the Impossible Demands of Morality, which is newly published by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.